It's good to have you all here this morning. We are so pleased to see all of those who are not sick. We are all going to stay not sick. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. Did we in our own strength 
Amen. Let's join together in reciting the Apostles' Creed, which can be seen on the screens in front of you. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Virgin birth. 
sand and stars, how bright, how far, further than my eyes can see, glory us, your heart for us, reflected in the galaxy. Gazing at the sky above, the evidence of endless love you have for me. On and on, your love goes on and on. The one who was and is and is to come, we stand in awe and wonder.
Father, we want to thank you for that truth. As your love goes on and on, it will last forever. It is eternal because it is who you are. We've come to worship today to give you thanks for who you are, to open our lives to you, that you might continue to transform us into the image of your son, what you created us to be. So we pray today, Father, that you will be glorified in our worship. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of things that uh, we are doing a little different than what you might see in your bulletin. We, we've uh, had, there have been over 100 cases of uh, gastrointestinal virus type symptoms on the campus. And so we are uh, trying to take that seriously and not make that worse. Uh, so we decided maybe not doing a greeting time this morning would be the best option. So, um, you know, feel free. Thought about, you know, wearing masks and gloves, but that just didn't seem right. But it's hard to preach with a mask on, right? Uh, but we do want to be cautious about that and not make that uh, that worse. So uh, we decided not to do that. We also decided it may be a good idea to postpone communion a week as well. And so uh, we'll be doing that next week instead of this week. But uh, we're glad that you are here, and uh, we, uh, we pray that God will speak into our hearts today as we worship Him. We've now finished uh, just about one week of our prayer vigil, and uh, we are already beginning to hear stories back from folks who have had some really positive experiences being in the prayer room. If you haven't had a chance to go in the prayer room, let me encourage you to do that. You can sign up anytime uh, online. If you'd help signing up, let us know. Uh, also, um, we... Um, and we want to, uh, if you haven't had a chance, if you've been in there, let me invite you to go again. I find that, you know, there's so many things to do, so many ways to engage in prayer that one hour just sort of scratches the surface. So we encourage you to do that again if you have the opportunity to do that. Um, we want to just give you another opportunity this morning to hear just a brief uh, testimony uh, about prayer in the life of our church. And then Jess Romance is going to share a few moments about Operation Christmas Child. morning. Um, I'm just here to invite you to our Wednesday night ministry program. Typically on Wednesday night we do our kids program and this week we are kind of overlapping things and we are going to use that time to do our second um, annual, I guess you could say, um, packing party for Operation Christmas Child. We're inviting anybody in the congregation, so even if you do not have children in our ministry, we would love to have you. We want this to be a whole congregation um, event. 
Um, so if you are able to come, we are going to do that between 6 and 7, the packing. And if you can show up any time during that time, don't feel you have to be there at 6. You can show up at 6.45. You can probably pack a box in 15 minutes. At 7 o'clock, we are going to take a time to dedicate the boxes and pray over them. So if you can just come before 7 to get your box packed, and then we'll have that opportunity to pray over them. If you are unable to come to that event, there are some other ways that you can help. We have red boxes both in the back of the foyer here and also in the Christian Education Building. And you can put donations in there. So we're looking for school supplies, socks, T-shirts, anything that you would like that you could contribute to the boxes. If you have um, a skill or a craft you do at home, we, can, we would take those kinds of things also. Um, and another way that you can help um, is to pack your own box. So if you can't make the event, don't want to donate to the boxes or can't or would like to make your own, we also have um, boxes over in the Christian Education Building and labels or you can pay online. The donation fee did go up to $9 this year. So another way that you could help, again, if you can't come to the packing party, um, is to um, donate money that we can send those boxes out. So there's just a few ways that you can help. And just a reminder, this is the last week of Operation Christmas Child. Boxes are due Sunday, but if you forget, I won't be taking them until Monday night. So that'll give you a one-day buffer. Thank you. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. stand before you now the greatness of your renown I have heard of the majesty and wonder of you king of heaven in humility I bow and as your
Father, it is an awesome thing to consider that you have made a way for all to enter in. And in your grace and mercy through Christ, you have opened the door for us to experience the fullness of who you are, to experience your created designs for us of life and flourishing, hope, joy, love. We thank you. We thank you that in your grace and mercy, you call us to pray. You call us to interact with you, to hear you, to speak to you. And in this moment now, we come to you for that very purpose. We know that there are many needs among us. There's lots of illness, grief, pain, confusion, uncertainty, fear and anxiety. Lord, in these next few moments of silence, hear our prayers. Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but for the wider needs that are beyond us. We pray for our nation. Struggles that we are facing here. People recovering from disasters and struggles the disunity in our nation, the divisiveness. Father, we pray for our world, for refugees in their times of struggle and crisis. We pray, Father, for uh, churches uh, around us. Think of the Orchard Park Wesleyan Church and Pastor Dan Jones. Father, we, we pray for the work of your kingdom around the world. And today on this day when in which the church around the world sets aside time specifically to pray for the persecuted church. In these next few moments of silence, hear our prayers for our brothers and sisters who face such great difficulty and pressure and stress and persecution because they follow Jesus just as we do.
Father, as we think about this world and we think about our lives, give us a new perspective about what is truly important. Help us to see others as people to be loved. Teach us the way of humility and of trust. And help us, O Lord, to to be among those who know how to humble ourselves. Father, we pray that, that you will continue to draw us closer to you and to one another. And as we continue in these next few weeks of our prayer vigil, we pray that your anointing would be upon every person that enters that room. That they would sense you present. And that they would have a life-changing encounter with you. With the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, for all of this, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our returning King, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Uh, When I'm done reading, the children may be dismissed to Children's Church. There is no junior church today. So this passage has a whole bunch of Old Testament names in it that are hard to pronounce. So this week I went on YouTube and I listened to a rabbi read the scripture. So I'm going to channel my inner rabbi and try to do my best at pronouncing them. So, all right. The Lord gave this message to Zephaniah when Josiah, son of Ammon, was king of Judah. Zephaniah was the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah. Son of Hezekiah, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to the idolatrous priests, for they go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun and the moon and the stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Melechtu, and I will destroy those who used to worship me but now no longer do. They no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my blessings. They think the Lord will do nothing to them, either good or bad. That terrible day of the Lord is near. Gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Gaza and Ashkelon will be abandoned. Ashdod and Ekron torn down. Moab and Ammon will be destroyed. Ethiopians also, says the Lord. Lord Lord will destroy the land of Assyria. What sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime? It refuses all correction. It does not trust in the Lord or draw near to God. Its leaders are like roaring lions. Its judges are like ravenous wolves. Its prophets are like arrogant liars. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying the Lord's instructions. On that day, I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. 
On that day, you will no longer be rebels against me. Those who are left will be lowly and humble, for it is they who will trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. They will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will live among you. At last your troubles will be over, and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice with you over with joyful songs. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction, among all the nations of the earth. As I restore your fortunes before their very eyes, I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is Yeah. 
Please be seated. You ever had the experience of wishing you could have a do-over? You know, you, you think to yourself, okay, why did I say that? Or maybe, why didn't I say that? Or why did I react that way? Why did, why did, I, why did I, you know, take that step or not take that step? I mean, there's, I suspect that most of us understand and, and have had the experience of, of wishing we had a do-over. I'll be honest with you. There are a lot of Sundays when I, when I drive home. I think. Oh I wish I had a do-over. I think. Oh I, I, why didn't I say that. Or why did I say that. Or oh I missed this. Or I missed that. And a lot of you know. It's sort of having to let that go. Is a lot of the process of Sunday. And, and last week was one of those Sundays. Where when I got done. Later in the day. And on Monday. I was pondering that sermon on Habakkuk. And I, and I realized that. I thought, I think I missed something. I, I, I think I missed a little bit of the tone of Habakkuk. I think I missed a little bit of, of uh, the, the, the mindset and the passion of Habakkuk. And, and one of the things that I missed was the fact that Habakkuk asks all these questions of God. And God doesn't run away from those questions. God doesn't mind asking questions. In fact, when you read the book of Habakkuk, you see that these questions that Habakkuk asks actually allows God to address some things that Habakkuk is wrestling with. And without the questions, there's no way to get to the answers. And by the time you get to the end of Habakkuk's prophecy, he has understood some things that he didn't see at the beginning because he asked the questions. And the primary question that Habakkuk is asking is, how long, O Lord? Aren't you going to do something? Don't you care? Aren't aren't you going to take some action about the injustice that's going on among your very people and in this world? And when we come to Zephaniah, we find that he's not asking questions because God, in essence, is giving us a clear answer to what Habakkuk is asking. And God is saying, you don't get any how long, O Lord. You don't get any, aren't you going to do anything, God? In Zephaniah, you get a, I'm going to do it. And it's going to happen whether you like it or not. The beginning part of Habakkuk, and we really just read a little bit of it. The entire first chapter is one of those prophecies that, you know, we keep coming back to in these minor prophets of like, wow, okay, enough already. We get it. You're, you're. You're going to take some action here among your people. And, and God keeps saying over and over again in, in verse 2, you have God saying to the people, I am going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. 
And then the next verses, all the way down to verse 18, are how he's going to do that and what that's going to look like. And then you get to verse 18 and he says, he will make a terrifying end of all the people on the earth. And when we read that kind of thing, it makes us nervous. It makes us uncomfortable because it seems so definite and so conclusive. And we read that and it bothers us because we think that's not the kind of way things we want God to talk. We don't want God to talk like that because it makes us uncomfortable and it feels like he's not going to, he's not the nice God that we thought he was. But the reality is God is is weary of the sin of his people. Now, Zephaniah is is a prophet um, somewhere in the middle part of the seventh century, uh, and the and the um, and the people of of Judah have been through a, a terrible time of rebellion against God. Some of the worst times of their whole history. And King Manasseh is, is the king that perpetuates most of this, and it is it is almost fifty years or more of of just evil. And as you could see from that prophecy, the beginning, it talks about his heritage and it gets back to Hezekiah, which means that he is probably the great, great, great grandson of King Hezekiah. There is something of the royal, of royalty in Zephaniah's lineage. He knows all about the, the rebellion, the rejection of God, the evil in the palace. And God comes to him and says... I'm weary of this. Now, it's not just that God is weary of it, but it's the fact that, that there is this destructiveness to evil and sin. And when we read a passage like this, I think it reveals, and, and our reaction to it, I think in some way it reveals how, how, how little we realize the destructive nature of sin. And I think it, it, it sort of belies a little bit maybe of a sense of entitlement that we have with God. You know, I think for numerous, for a long time, the mindset about, about sin and God was we have to be careful because God's wrath is right there. And, and he is going to bring his wrath upon us if we sin. And I think that to a certain degree that was unhealthy. I think it focused on the, the wrath of God. And we lived in fear. And so what we have done now is we have swung the pendulum the other way. And now there is a sense of God has to forgive us. God, God has to let us go. God has to be nice. God, God won't hold us accountable for sin. And we can do whatever we want. In fact, in, in I think it's chapter 1 verse 12, he says that one of the problems he has with these people is that they don't think God will do anything good or bad. God just steps back and says, just do whatever you want. It's okay with me. It doesn't matter. And God won't do that. God takes it seriously because sin is so destructive. Sin ruins our lives. Sin destroys everything about us. It destroys our relationships because sin is focused on ourselves instead of on God. And it destroys our relationships. It destroys the hopes and the dreams that God has for us, the created purposes for God for our lives. It creates a skewed view of who God is. You see, what he's really talking about here is not just sin, but he's talking about idolatry. 
Now, all the prophets, prophets we've come across so far, most of what they've talked about is injustice. And, and Zephaniah does talk a little bit about injustice in this prophecy. But it's injustice that is caused by idolatry. And idolatry is really the focus of God's attention here. We have a hard time with idolatry because when we think of idolatry, we think of some kind of wood statue that is carved or maybe something made out of gold or silver and and people bow down in front of it and we think we don't do that. But the truth is, idolatry is really focusing our lives on something other than God. It's what we worship. It's what gets our time and our energy It's what gets our resources. It's the center point of our lives. It's the thing around which our lives orbit. And when when the thing around which we orbit is idolatry, then it creates a destructiveness in us because it's all about focused on self. It's self-absorbed living. And self-absorbed living is going to manipulate people to get what we want. It's going to hurt people to get what we want. Even, as he says in this prophecy, even leads to violent behavior in all the forms of that. Because we are getting what we want and nothing matters more than getting what we want. And it is rooted in a skewed view of God. We worship idols because we don't really believe that God is who he says he is. We worship idols because we think God's way is not near as good as what these idols promise us. And so it skews our view of God and it creates an atmosphere, it creates an image of God that is small and benign and limited That God is not really good and he doesn't want to do good for us. And so we have to find another way. And when that happens, it's not just about us. It's not just even about the church. It's about the whole world. Because now we are sending a message to the whole world that our God is not who he says he is. He's just like all the other gods. He's just like all the other beings that people worship. And when we worship idols, we are sending a message to people saying, why would you consider Yahweh? Why would you consider God? Because quite frankly, we struggle to consider God. In the end, idolatry is really really deciding that A shortcut to what we want is better than whatever way God may lead us. God created human beings to flourish. You read Genesis 1 and you see the image there of God's blessing poured out on his creation. God created people to flourish, to know life and joy and peace and, and the, the joy and the, and the unity of relationship, he created all of this good. And he put that into our hearts. We know that's what we were created for. The problem is, now that sin has entered the picture, we think we can find a better, faster, easier way to that than God offers. Because it involves waiting for God. It involves trusting God. And none of us like to wait. 
We're always trying to figure out what's the shortest, fastest route to get to the end that we want. And God keeps calling us out of that to say, I'm more interested in you trusting me. Because when you trust me, you get close to me. And when you get close to me, then you begin to really experience what I want for you. But when you take the fastest shortcut, you're not thinking about me at all. You're just thinking about what, I, what you think that, that I want to give you without me in the picture at all. I mean, think about Exodus 32 and the Israelites in the wilderness. And Moses goes up on the mountain and he spends 40 days on the mountain with God. And after a while, you read the beginning of Exodus 32, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. They said, come on, make us some gods who can lead us because we don't know what's happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. They don't want to wait any longer. 40 days is a long time to wait. And so the, the alternative to waiting is the shortcut of idolatry. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, every temptation is to take a shortcut. Every temptation is to say, look, you don't need to go through all of this pain. You don't need to go through the, the, the agony, the, the burden, the journey of what God has called you to do. If you trust me, if you do what I'm asking you to do, you can get to that end quickly, easily. And every time Jesus refuses that. And every temptation of to idolatry is to take a shortcut. And here's the thing about it. The shortcut of idolatry does not lead us to the blessings of God faster. The shortcut of idolatry actually leads us completely the opposite direction from the blessings of God. Because instead of focusing on God and waiting for him and trusting him, we are trying to remove God completely from the picture. And I think it comes back to we forget. We forget what God wants for us. We forget that the, what God has designed for his creation is more glorious than, than what we often seek and want in the temporary shortcut solutions. And so when you get to the end of this prophecy, we have this glorious description of, of what God is going to do here. When you get to the end of this, and he says in beginning in verse 16, he says, On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he'll calm all your fears. He'll rejoice over you with joyful songs. I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals, and you'll be disgraced no more. And I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I'll bring together those who were chased away. I'll give glory and fame to my former exiles, wherever they have been mocked and shamed. And on that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I'll give you a good name, a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth, as I restore your fortunes before their very eyes. I, the Lord, have spoken. What a beautiful picture. This is what God wants for us. And every time we choose, we choose to trust God, this is the end it's bringing us toward. 
I love the imagery that, that Zephaniah just, uh, paints for us here of, of God bringing us home. And home is that place of safety and security and peace. And even if home for you wasn't that experience, it's what we want it to be. It's what we've always hoped it to be. It's what God has created it to be. You think about homecoming. You know, why do, why do people come back for homecoming? I mean, it's nice to see the buildings and maybe visit a few places that were special when you were there in school. But what we really come back for is the other people. In fact, we might even only come back for homecoming because we know he's coming back or she's coming back or they're coming back. And we want a chance to be together again. And God says, it's not just about bringing you home, but it's bringing you home to be with me. To be with me. And that's where the glory lies. That's the great promise of God, is that he is calling us to be with him. Because that's where the point of blessing and flourishing and life and grace and everything that he has created us to be, that's where it's focused. That's where we find it, in him. And the problem of idolatry is that it leads us away from that. I was down in the prayer room this week, uh, the elders got together down there for an hour and we spent a little bit of time just on our own. And I spent about 10 or 15 minutes at the kneeling bench. And, and in front of me is a picture of Jesus holding a little lamb. This picture. And I, I suspect it's, it's created from uh, the parable of uh, the lost lamb. Where the shepherd goes out and looks for the one and brings him back. And I was just meditating about this picture and thinking about this picture and pondering this picture. And, and it struck me of just, just this, the feeling of safety and security of being held in those strong arms of God. And you and I are that little lamb. That little lamb that God will seek and search for and bring home and, and, and caress and draw close to him. But you know, often, the problem, the problem we have is that often, that's not enough for us. We think we, we know better. We think there's something better than being held in the arms of God. We, we just got a new puppy a month or so ago. And, and you know, we, he's kind of a cuddler. And we love that, you know. Nothing like a cuddling puppy, right? But he's kind of getting to the place ever so often now where he wants to, he thinks he wants something more than that. And so instead of just letting us hold him, he's wrestling and wiggling. We called him Wrigley and we should have called him Wiggly because that's what he does all the time now. And he's just wiggling all around and he wants to get down. He's fighting with you. And the problem is you about drop him sometimes. But he doesn't understand that. He just wants to get down and do what he wants to do. But he doesn't realize how dangerous it is when he's doing that and we're trying to hold on to him. And you and I don't realize how dangerous it is when we do that with God. He says, come here, I want, I want, to, I want to give you the very essence of who I am. And I want to hold you tight. You're mine. And we keep wrestling Thinking we know better, that we could find something better than God. And that is idolatry. And the, and the question that is going through my mind as I was thinking about this was, what do we do about it? How do we overcome this feeling of idolatry? And in chapter 2, verse 11, God says, I'm going to destroy the idols. 
And that appears to mean he's going to smash them. And then we're done with them. But that's not exactly what the word means. Actually, the King James Version of the Bible catches the, the gist of this. It says that he is going to starve the idols. That word means to, to starve, to, to famish, to refuse to nourish. And I want God to just smash the idols and get rid of them and then I'm done. But for some reason, he just decided that the best way to get rid of idols is not to smash them, but to starve them. To refuse to feed them. Because when you take that perspective, it forces you to continue to trust God. And how do we starve the idols? By making the decision... To wait, to trust. In the beginning of chapter 2, it's really the only place in this whole prophecy where we get some kind of a command. And here he says, he says, gather together. Yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins, for your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you, protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. He says to gather. Gather together. Now, I think we typically think of gathering together, of doing what we're doing today, and I think that's a part of it. But I think there's something more than that. And as I thought about what it means to gather together, what came to my mind was an image, something about basketball. And, and in, in basketball, you might often hear an announcer talk about a player before they take a shot, gathering themselves. And what they mean by that is that maybe the person caught an, uh, a pass that maybe wasn't right to them, maybe it was an errant pass. They had to lunge for it, they had to reach for it, they had to move for it. And, and when they did, they're out of balance. They don't have a good grip on the ball. Their feet are in the right place. And so they need to gather themselves before they take a shot. And that means they get their feet set. It means that their body is in proper balance. And it means that they have a good grip on the ball in the right way. And when that happens, when all of that is together, then they're ready to spring into taking their shot. But if they don't do that, they're just going to throw up something wild that has virtually no chance of going in. And so they gather themselves. And why do they do that? Because they realize there is a problem. Things are not what they should be. And so they gather themselves. And you and I, when we come together for worship, to pray when we come together to engage ourselves, we are in essence saying there is something not right and I need to make it right. I recognize that, that my life is not what it should be, that our lives corporately maybe are not what they should be and we need to gather ourselves. It's one of the reasons why we do these prayer vigils every year. Because it's an opportunity in the midst of all of the busyness and the chaos of life to step back and to gather ourselves individually and corporately. And that's why I think we need at least an hour to do that because it takes a little while to, to get focused, 
to let go of the, all the stuff that's in our minds, to really focus on God and to encounter God and to hear God and to speak to God. It's a part of gathering together. And in that gathering, we individually and corporately seek God. And we ask God to make us humble. We ask God to help us to do what is right. Because that's the kind of people, that's the kind of mindset that God is calling us to so that we can experience what he's designed for us. When you get to that kind of mindset, then you begin to recognize that what he says in chapter 3 and verse 14, it makes sense. And he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. You begin to recognize the joy of waiting. The joy of starving those idols. The joy of, of focusing our attention on our Creator and our Savior. The day is going to come when we will spend our existence in one way or another singing the praises of God. When God's people come together, we sing. You look at the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, what do the people do there around the throne? They sing. God's people through the ages sing. They come together. It is a vital part of worship to sing. Because in singing, we come together and we think about not only the words, but the melodies. They come from our hearts in a way that words alone cannot do. Singing is an expression of our hearts. And praise and worship and adoration for who God is. There's something about singing that, that communicates what's in our being. And it doesn't matter if you think you sing well or not. It's just the joy that comes from knowing God and focusing our lives on God and His grace and mercy. God has great plans for us. God has plans for us that are so far beyond what you and I truly can comprehend. The question is, do we believe it? Do we really believe it? I guess the thing that comes to my mind is that a part of believing it is recognizing that if we're going to sing the praises of God that day, then we ought to be singing the praises of God this day. And it doesn't mean that, that we just ignore the fact that life is hard, that it's a struggle, that it, we have pain and difficulties, because we do. That is living in this broken, fallen world. But in the middle of it, we know who's in control. We know what he's promised us. We know what he's done for us in Christ. And we know who he is. And we can trust him. God, we pray that you will give us grace to want you to work in us, to change us, 
and to transform us into the image of your son and give us that passion, that desire to sing your praises, to celebrate who you are in all of life. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing his praises together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be with you now and forevermore. Amen.